Hello and welcome to Arena Craft, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on MTG Arena. My name is Arjuna, I am your host, and this is an exciting time. We've just concluded this year's 2020 World Championship in Hawaii, and this is just a huge moment in Magic in general. It's the biggest tournament ever, biggest stakes, and it's also the first time that we've really gotten to see highest level competitive play in the Theros Beyond Death standard format. So what I'm going to be going into today is just analyzing the World Championship, analyzing the Mata game, giving some of my thoughts on where it leaves us, and I'm excited to get into that. But first, I just wanted to make a quick announcement on the future of this podcast, which is just that After doing this for, this is my 10th episode here, after doing this for 10 episodes, I've decided that I'm going to move away from doing Pioneer content. And that's just simply because I'm really excited about Arena and I really want to focus on that. And I kind of flirted with Pioneer for a while because it was a new and exciting format and I still feel that way about it. But I just noticed that I've been a lot more interested in Arena. I have not been excited to fire up Magic the Gathering online. And I haven't been playing much Pioneer and Paper either. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go all in on Arena. I think that that's where the majority of my listeners are anyway. And Pioneer will be coming to Arena eventually, unless there's a big change of plans. So I think I'm just going to wait until that happens. I'm going to wait until Pioneer starts to make its way into Arena, either via Historic or via it actually being some kind of a Pioneer. So in the meantime, if you are someone who has been enjoying the Arena-focused content, then great. This is the place for you, and that's going to be exclusively what I talk about It also just keeps things simpler for me, and yeah, I I like it that way. So that's the way it's going to be. Okay, moving on. So let's just dive into this Magic Worlds format. I watched as much of this weekend as I could manage to. There was a whole heck of a lot of Magic played this weekend. Boy, I mean, I'm just thinking about the finals where we literally saw two players play four best of three matches back to back for the finals. I mean, that is a slog, man. That is a lot of magic. And for those day three competitors, a lot of them had to do that all day. So a real slog fest, (laughs) but it also yielded some really interesting and exciting magic that we get to talk about today. So the first thing I want to dive into is my overall thoughts of the format that I saw this weekend. For starters, one of the things that I noticed about this format, and I feel like it's been headed in this direction, and this format is no exception, is just that standard at the moment is some very powerful magic. And I feel like this format in particular feels even more that way to me. So much of what was happening here this weekend was focused on really raw power level cards and strategies, cards designed to close the game very quickly and do a lot of work on their own. 
And it kind of occurred to me as I was getting into this that this was less of a synergy-based format and more of a power-based format. And I was trying to dissect what that meant to me. I, I don't necessarily think that that's an entirely correct way to look at it. Obviously, synergy is powerful. And obviously, every deck in every format which has any kind of governing archetype is going to have inherent synergy in it. But what I really mean by that is just that there were a lot of decks that I saw this weekend. I mean, all of them really in some regard had the ability to win the game off the back of just one powerful card or like they didn't need to necessarily do a lot of setup to just win out of nowhere. And I think that you don't always get that. I think that there are formats where you've seen the deck will really have to get a number of its key pieces down to do its thing. Or a deck will have to spend so-and-so amounts of time working towards a game plan which culminates in these final turns that execute the plan. And I was looking at the decks this weekend and I, I just didn't see a lot of that. You know, you just have a, a Fires opponent who got disrupted the whole game and then just slammed a Cavalier and did the last nine points of damage haste to the face. So many times you'd see a red deck would basically run out of gas and then maybe draw a hasty threat or just draw their Embercleave, which took a battlefield full of dorks and just turned it into a lethal force so i think that that's something that's really happening at the moment in this format and i think that you really need to be thinking about the raw power level of your cards and thinking about whether they can get there if you get wrathed if you get disrupted if your hand gets disrupted if your opponent brings in strong stuff from the sideboard you really have to be able to weather this kind of stuff in this format and I don't necessarily know that that's been as true in some previous formats. So that was a lot of what I was seeing this weekend. And really, everyone this weekend was trying to leverage some incredibly powerful cards to get that. We saw Wilderness Reclamation and Fires of Invention, two of the most powerful mana engines in Standard right now. We were seeing both of the four mana Wraths on display, both Shatter the Sky and Storm's Wrath were doing a lot of work in this tournament. We also saw some of Theros' strongest creatures in Dream Trawler and Archons of Sun's Grace come to the table. Also Anax, Hardened in the Forge, just another one of the stronger creatures that we've seen in Standard in, in recent times. So yeah, I think that the power level is just very high in Standard at the moment, and I think if you look at your deck, one of the main questions you need to be answering for yourself is, is my deck powerful enough? And if I get to top decking, do I have good top decks that can still win me the game? And in the average hand, do I have enough powerful cards that are going to impact the board enough that even if I get wrathed or disrupted or something else disastrous happens to my game plan, I still have the ability to single-handedly slam one or two cards and, and just win the game anyway. That's something that I saw all weekend, and I think it's going to be really important moving forward in this format. So now I want to go into the specific deck archetypes and just dissect them a little bit and give my thoughts on them. 
Let us start with the winning deck in the hands of Paulo Vitor Damodorosa. Congratulations to him, by the way, following through on his lifelong dream of being a world champion. We all knew that he could get there. I think just about anyone would have put him at the top of that list of people who hadn't won a world's trophy who deserved one. So no one was surprised to see him take that tournament down. And what we really saw this weekend was the powerful combination of a Hall of Fame level top-notch player like Paulo piloting a deck crafted by the Czech house, who are you know arguably some of the strongest deck brewers in Magic at the moment. And so this was like a really powerhouse duo coming into this world championship. Stanislav Sifka is credited for doing a lot of the development behind the Azorius deck, which took this tournament down. And after seeing this deck in a bunch of matches, you can really tell why that is. I mean, this deck is a thing of beauty. And frankly, it really shows off a lot of the power of the enchantment synergy in this deck. This deck is built around these enchantment engines that really keep the deck churning through so you have thirst for meaning you have omen of the sea you have elspeth conquers death you have banishing light you have birth of Miletus, you have archon of sun's grace these are all cards that really take advantage of and provide the enchantment package that this deck runs on and then of course you have Huge finishes like Dream Trawler, like Archon of Sun's Grace, which are taking advantage of the reanimate on the Elspeth Conquer's death. So this is really the engine of this deck, and it proves just how powerful these enchantments can be. I mean, they're really the core machination that keeps this deck moving along. And then, of course, this is all built around just solid standard players like Teferi, Narset, Absorb, Mystical Dispute, Dovin's Veto. These are just the bread and butter cards of your Azorius control game since they all entered the format, respectively. Of course, Shatter the Sky, New Theros card doing a lot of work in these decks. So, yeah, one of the things that stood out to me the most from watching this deck this weekend was how powerful Teferi is. And this is not news to anybody, but I think a lot of people will talk about various cards being like the card of the tournament, right? Whether it was Dream Trawler or whether it was Anax Hardened in the Forge, you know, a number of these other powerful new cards from the new set, perhaps. But what I was really watching all weekend was Teferi just absolutely dominating this tournament. And I think part of it is just that it's good against just about every deck that was in this field. So let's examine all of the things that Teferi is doing in this field. It was surprisingly good against red deck wins. And that's because you don't quite realize how much the red deck tends to do during their combat step. So of course, Embercleave being the biggest example Teferi, while it doesn't completely shut down Embercleave, it basically turns it from being this efficient, dangerous threat that can come down and just end the game on the spot 
to being a really clunky six mana enchantment that you have to drop, you know, probably at the end of your turn. And it can actually just strand that card in your hand for an entire game because it's not often that the red deck will actually make it to six mana, or by the time they do, they've usually lost. So Teferi shutting down Embercleave is huge. Teferi shutting down Boulder Rush is a big deal. And it, yeah, it just makes life so much harder for the red deck when a Teferi is down. A lot of the the trickiest and most powerful things that the deck can do are just turned off by Teferi, as well as the fact that just bouncing a Torbran can be a, a very big deal against the red deck. I mean, the red deck doesn't lightly invest four mana in anything. So that's basically the entire turns mana for a red deck. And so if you get to return that to someone's hand, it's a pretty big tempo loss for the red deck. So Teferi surprisingly relevant against the red decks. I would say Teferi probably has its strongest game against the Team of Reclamation deck. I mean, this is a deck which almost can't function with Teferi on the battlefield. I mean, Teferi completely nullifies the effect of your Reclamation. This deck doesn't, like, for example, Fires plays a lot of mana sinks, and so Fires has things to do with its mana on the opponent's turn, even if you have a Teferi in play, but Team Rec really doesn't. So you don't have anything like a, like a Kenrith, for example, which you can sink your mana into even if you're being shut down at instant speed. And then, of course, in sideboard matches, when it's bringing in its counter spells and whatnot, then Teferi is equally relevant in that spot and is just really a defining card in the matchup. Of course, another card which is really important in the matchup I want to talk about because of Wreck is Narset. Now, Narset is also a difficult card for a lot of these decks to play again, but it just hoses Team of Reclamation so hard. It's like if you look at a lot of the core cards, which really help the engine to move on Team Arec, you've got Growth Spiral, you've got Oro, you've got Expansion Explosion. There's a lot of utility Expansion Explosion. People are doing Explosion for four or something like that just to refill their hand get a key threat off the battlefield, maybe even finish off a Planeswalker. And with Narset in play, it's just completely shutting down all of that card draw. And it's so key for this deck. This deck really relies upon cycling through its cards to, you know, find the missing piece of the game plan. And when you're not able to do that, the deck really suffers. And if you're playing Team Arec and your opponent manages to get down both a Teferi and a Narset, it's just a pretty solid lock, you know? It's like at that point, you're priced into casting a Krasis for basically no value. If you cast a Krasis and you don't draw cards and then your opponent bounces it with their Teferi, it's just a time walk. I mean, it's it's just a disaster. You basically just gained a few life against a deck that doesn't care about it. So both of these cards are really devastating for the Team Arec game plan, and I think it's one of the reasons why this deck didn't do better in the tournament. I think Azorius really, really dominates that matchup. I also want to point out that Narset can also be a real problem for the Fires deck to play against. If you resolve a Cavalier of Gales with a Narset on the battlefield you basically just have to put two cards 
from your hand back on top of your library. And that's it. It's like, play a 5-5 five, five flyer, put two cards back on my library, which is just a disaster. You can't be doing that. It also nullifies the effect of the Cavalier into the battlefield. And it also shuts down Teferi, which is a really important card to keep that deck moving along, to solve problems for it. So, yeah, Narset is just so rough. All weekend we were watching Narset just shutting down this, shutting down that. Some interactions that, you know, you might not necessarily have expected. Some of the less intuitive interactions here, for example, if you cast a Shatter the Sky on your opponent's turn using Teferi, then Narset will prevent you from drawing that extra card with a four-power creature. And of course, in the mirror, Narset is shutting down your opponent's Omen of the Sea if they're trying to resolve that on their turn. It is making Thirst for Meaning substantially worse and again useless on their turn. It's preventing your opponent's Teferi from drawing a card. So Narset has made a return to this format in a big way. We saw a downtick on Narset for a while there, and I think it was just because the format really wasn't as much about drawing cards. And the, the blue-white decks had different problems to solve and different things to be doing. But Narset's really back. You have to look out for it. And especially if you're a deck like Teamer Reclamation, you really have to have a plan for it. During a period where I was playing Mono Blue on the ladder for a while... I really got shut down by the combination of Teferi and Narset, and it really made that deck basically unplayable. So if you're going to be playing a deck in Standard, you have to ask yourself, do either of those Planeswalkers pose a big problem for me? And if they do, what am I going to do about that? Now, moving on to some fun new cards. A card which I think a lot of people had hopes riding on, which put up fine results this weekend but i don't think was a, a really defining card of the weekend was dream trawler now i'm not saying this card isn't powerful it is it's a total house it's one of the more important cards in standard but i would say that it really wasn't one of the cards for me that really made this weekend tick like case in point the checkhouse version of the azorius deck only ran one copy of Dream Troll in the entire 75. And that's a big deal. I mean, you know, a lot of people are saying that that is one of the most powerful cards in Standard and one of the main reasons, one of the main payoffs that you get for running Azorius Control. And so to be only running one in the entire 75 is a pretty bold statement. On the other hand, you'll notice that this deck was running three Archon of Sun's Grace in the 75, one in the main, two in the sideboard. And that should tell you something about the priorities of the threats in this deck. And that was really borne out by the results in this tournament. You could see in the matches that Paulo was playing against Marcio in the finals, that Archon was just doing so much work. It was clogging up the board. It was frequently closing the game out for Paulo, and doing it a lot faster, I might add, than a Dream Trawler would have as well. We often would see Paulo just build up a board of three or four Pegasus and then just swing in for lethal in, in one big turn. 
it also just gives you so many more options to go wide in that way. Like, if you only have one dream troll on the battlefield, it can be a little bit difficult to line up blocks to figure out whether you have an opening to attack with it. A lot of times you might not be able to, depending on what your opponent has. And the Archon really solves a lot of those problems by giving you a bunch of flying lifelinking docks. It just gives you a lot of options. It is weaker, as we saw, to Deafening Clarion out of the Fires deck. So that is something that you have to think about if you're playing that matchup. But you can navigate around that counter spells, etc. But it is something to consider. So it's looking to me like the enchantment-based version of this deck rather than the instant or sorcery-based version is probably going to be the version that you're going to see moving forward. It's just Omen of the Sea is so good. That card was just performing very, very consistently the whole weekend. Thirst for Meaning is such a strong card. Being able to draw three cards and throw away your Birth of Miletus later in the game when that card is no longer important or effective is just really huge. Also being able to cycle away your lands later in the game and just replace them with spells is really, really big. It doesn't surprise me that the Checkhouse version of this deck performed better than Toralf's list. Um, looking down Toralf's list, you just see... It's a bunch of four ofs. You have four Dream Trawlers. You have four Narset, four Teferi, four, 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 four. And this version of the deck looked very... It frankly looked like an untuned arena ladder list to me. I think a deck like this would not be wrong to run on like an arena ladder, especially like a best of one ladder when you don't know what you're up against. But... I think it was just very, very clear from looking at the checkhouse list that they had done more refinement on it and it was a, a more well-oiled machine and the inclusions felt more considered and I think that the performance in the tournament bore that out. I am curious to see how Spectral Sailor could continue to perform in this archetype. When I have seen it on the board in some matchups, it's looked quite strong being able to have that recurring card engine. But to be honest, like if you look at the games that Paulo was playing, you know, I don't even know when he would have slipped it in or, or managed to afford that card draw. He already had so many scries going on with his omens. He already had so many things to do with his mana that I think sinking four mana into drawing a single card, I'm just not sure when he would really have found the effective time to do that. But I'm going to keep my eye on that because that's a cool thing that Toralf was doing. And I think in some spots that, that could be interesting. All right, let's move on to the second highest performing deck in the format, or rather in this tournament, which was Jeskai Fires in the hands of Marcio Carvalho. Now, Boy, if there was one thing that this tournament taught me, it was that Jeskai Fires is just a very, very powerful deck. You cannot count this deck out of any tournament these days. It's been taking down smaller tournaments before leading up to the World Championship, and it almost took this tournament down. I mean, let's remember that the only person Paulo lost to this weekend was Marcio Carvalho playing this deck so 
he actually beat Polo in the first match that they played. And he went two and two with Polo in the finals as well, playing this Jeskai Fires list. And so the only reason that Polo was able to pull it out was because he only needed to win two matches instead of the three that Marcio needed coming out of the lower bracket. But I just think that the performance of this deck this weekend in the hands of Gabriel Nassif and in the hands of Marcio really illustrated to me that this deck still has a lot of life in it and it still really belongs at the top of the format. And I think part of the reason is just that it's capable of doing exactly what I was outlining at the top of this podcast, which is just having these explosive turns. It's like you can almost never count this deck out. Being able to top deck important cards like Kenrith the Returned King, Cavalier of Flame, or even just being able to scry to every single turn with your Castle Vantress because your mana is open because you have a Fires in play. There are just so many things that this deck does that help you to keep digging towards more threats. The Cavaliers get you there. Kenrith will draw you more cards. Teferi will draw you more cards. So this deck has a lot of power and a lot of resiliency and a lot of ability to attack for massive amounts of damage in a hasty way, which actually made it very, very hard for the blue-white deck to deal with. And I think that that's something that can't be stressed enough is that these blue-white decks really first and foremost in this format tap out decks. It's not that they don't play at instant speed. There was definitely plenty of counterspelling going on, definitely plenty of things happening on the opponent's turn. But there were just so many times when the blue-white deck would have to tap out for an Elspeth Conquer's death or would have to tap a substantial amount of mana to cast Shatter the Sky and stuff like that. And if the opponent had a Fires on the board, you know, Marcio was often able to navigate to a state where Paulo was just tapped out or Paulo didn't have enough mana to deal with all the threats on the board and he was able to just get in these huge hasty bursts of incredible amounts of damage. So this deck is still really a contender. I wouldn't disagree with anyone saying that they thought this was the strongest deck in the meta. I was very very impressed watching this deck all weekend. It had solid matchups against mono red. It had solid matchups against blue white control. It didn't seem particularly weak to anything. One of the questions I do have in looking at this deck is whether Dream Trawler is the right inclusion, and if so, how many are right? Naturally, Dream Trawler is a great card, and it did some work in this tournament, but I'm not entirely sure that it's stronger than just running your full complement of four Cavalier of Gales. So Marcio's list, for example replace two Cavalier of Gales with two Dream Trawlers. And to be honest, I'm not really sure that the benefit that you gain from running Dream Trawler is worth the cost of taking out those two Cavalier of Gales. For one thing, the brainstorm that you get off the Cavalier is really a big deal. And it's a big part of what helps you cycle through your deck. And getting that into the battlefield trigger is just really key. Also, just being able to go off on turn five instead of on turn six, I think can be really, really powerful in this deck. So 
for whatever you gain with your dream troller being able to gain life and draw you extra cards and kind of stabilize you in that way, you're really paying a substantial cost by not being able to do the powerful just slamming cavalier into cavalier give him haste and just get in there on turn five so it's a huge cost to pay in your deck building and it's not something to be done lightly so i'm not saying that dream troller wasn't correct clearly marcio managed to get all the way to the finals running a deck with dream troller in it and that's not to be discounted but i think that this is still an unanswered question moving forward as to whether Dream Troller is the right inclusion in this deck, and if so, how many? How many do you run in the main? How many do you run in the sideboard? I don't think that it's at all conclusive. Another thing that really impressed me out of this deck was the effectiveness of Bone Crusher Giant versus Azorius Control. This card was surprisingly hard for the control deck to deal with, and I think that just being able to resolve a high-powered threat early in the game really forced the control deck to maybe tap out on their turn sooner than they wanted to or take more damage while they were trying to answer later threats out of the fires deck than they wanted to so yeah bone crosser was just a consistent performer this weekend both in the jeskai deck and in the mono red deck i think that this card is just still one of the stronger cards in the format and i think just about any red deck should be running some number of these. Also, one of the breakout cards this tournament was definitely Robber of the Rich, card which had seen relatively little standard success before this tournament. It's just cool to see this card finally getting some serious play in standard. We all knew it was powerful, and people had kind of flirted with it in the Throne of Eldraine standard, but it never really found a home. I think one of the reasons for that is that the red decks just were not as strong at that time. But also, people weren't tapping out in quite the same way the control decks had a different plan. And I think in this format, just being able to consistently put hasty threats on the board and keep your opponent's life total threatened, especially after something like a Shatter the Sky or a Storm's Wrath, is really, really important in this format. Likewise, being able to keep the pressure on against something like Teferi can be very, very important. So just a 2-2 haste for two is not necessarily a bad card in this format for the red decks to be playing. And then the ability to every now and then just snake a card from your opponent can be really strong. I mean, we saw Gabriel Nassif doing good work with this out of the sideboard in his Fires deck, and also even taking advantage of the rogue clause on his brazen borrower to cast a card that had been exiled by the robber of the rich. So there's a surprising amount of play to this card. One of the less intuitive things that you can do with it is, let's say you're on the play and your opponent plays their scry land on the first turn, which is the thing that people will often do, and, and they scry something to the top. And then on turn two, you can slam your Robber of the Rich and just yank it right off the top of their deck. So this card can do a fair amount of disruption. And also occasionally the Reach Clause is relevant as well, being able to maybe block a Dream Trawler or a Lethal Cavalier that was coming in at you. So 
I think that this card is surprisingly versatile and does a lot of work main deck in the red deck and also out of the sideboard in both the Team of Reclamation and the Jeskai Fires decks. I think it's interesting to compare this card to Legion Warboss as another go-to sideboard card in the red decks. People have typically leaned on the Warboss to sometimes punish control or punish any deck that's not running a lot of removal against you. Now, clearly Robber of the Rich doesn't have the army in the can effect, which Legion Warboss does. You know, Legion Warboss is a card that can single-handedly run away with the game if left unchecked. But the Robber of the Rich coming down a whole turn earlier, and also coming down with haste, it really can't be discounted. It's so much easier to get the Robber of the Rich in under counter magic, which it's a lot harder to do with the Legion Warboss. Also, just that attacking for 2 damage on turn 2 is very powerful, as opposed to, you know, let's say you get your Legion Warboss down on turn 3, and you play another threat on turn 4, and then your opponent wraths the board, you haven't necessarily accomplished a lot there. Whereas if you get down your Robber of the Rich on turn two, you're already attacking. And by the time a Wrath comes, you may have already done a reasonable amount of damage and have snaked a card off of your opponent in the process. So it puts on the heat a lot earlier. It's trickier to deal with. Also, Playing a Teferi and bouncing a Legion Warboss can be a fairly large setback for your opponent. They might not get another window to resolve that card, especially if they're trying to do bigger things. Whereas using your Teferi to bounce a Robber of the Rich back to your opponent's hand can often be tempo negative for you. So I think Robber of the Rich is... Definitely one of the breakout cards this weekend, and we're going to be seeing more of this card in standard moving forward. Lastly, I found it interesting to just compare the difference in the fires lists between, for example, the one Marcio was running versus the one Gabriel Nassif ended up running. Gabriel Nassif, of course, main decking Brazen Borrower, which was a card that was noticeably absent from Marcio Carvalho's list. Likewise, Carvalho running the Dream Trawler, which Gabriel Nassif elected not to run. So still a lot of conjecture around what is the correct threat and answer to run in this format. Also, Marcio Carvalho electing to run the older school Legion Warboss in the sideboard, whereas Gabriel Nassif choosing to run the Robber of the Rich. So there's still a lot of discussion to be done about what the best build of this Fires deck is. I think the Fires decks in general are one of the decks that's gone through the most permutations since it's been a fixture in the format. People have just been trying everything in this deck. And the truth is that Fires is just a strong card and there are many ways to abuse it. And it's still unclear as to what the best build of this deck is. And it's certainly going to change depending on the format and on the tournament. Okay, let's move on to the third place deck in the tournament, Mono Red, in the hands of Seth Manfield. Now, this deck was also very convincing, this tournament. I wouldn't have blamed anyone for thinking that this deck could have taken it all the way. And boy, Mono Red just really looking about as good as it ever has in the Mata game. This deck is so powerful, and I think one of the amazing things about this deck is that 
it can kind of effortlessly pivot from being this low curve aggro deck that plays a lot of one drops into this surprisingly resilient mid rangey plan of playing Anax into Tarbran, for example, and following it up with an Embercleave. So it can have these really big, more expensive plays in addition to having these cheap flurries of damage. And then cards like Light Up the Stage can really provide this deck with more staying power. And so in the past, what you've typically seen with a deck like this is you just play out all your threats and hope to get there before your opponent wrathed you or hope to get enough of the damage done that you could follow it up with a few more threats after the wrath and and just kind of hope that you got there. This deck doesn't have to do this. Anax Hardened in the Forge has, I would say, almost single-handedly put this deck back on the map. And the main reason for that is its resilience to the wrath. For example, in this deck, you can do something simple, like you can play a one-drop into a two-drop, into Anax on turn three, and then when your opponent wraths you on turn four, even if you're on the draw, you get four satyrs out of the deal. And then if you slam a Torbran on your next turn, you're attacking for 12. And that's just devastating. I mean, it's pretty hard to find a deck that can come back from something like that. And so it really puts the onus on your opponent to be controlling your board at every turn of the game they can't just wait back take you know some handful of damage resolve their wrath on turn four and basically just win the game from there it's really not that simple anymore so in this matter you need to have an answer for annex you need to have a strategy for dealing with this because slamming your wrath and hoping to get there after that is just not as solid of a plan as it used to be also just being able to drop your duplicate annex to get four extra Sata tokens is a massive game. And then finally, the interaction of putting a sword on annex and just buffing it up insanely is ridiculous. So overall, this guy is an A-plus in this deck, total all-star. Really excellent and limited too, by the way. I've been playing a lot of red and annex and limited. Really fantastic there as well. So that, along with Robber of the Rich, I think those are the two cards that were really showcased in this deck this weekend. And both of those cards, I think, a large part of the success of this deck at the tournament. Something that really impressed me in watching Seth play this deck was how carefully he deployed his threats. Now, what people will usually do again with decks like these is they'll just vomit out their hand They'll play all of their haste creatures as quickly as they can. They try to get in as much damage as they can. And there's really a lot of resource management going on with this deck. And it's really not at all simple the way that you're supposed to sequence your plays. So questions such as, do I play my Robber of the Rich and give it haste and attack on turn two? Do I keep it in my hand and play it post-combat to see if my opponent has a removal spell for my one drop? Do I elect not to play a threat on turn two, but instead to resolve my light up the stage? Questions like this, it's really a key part of playing this deck, and I think it adds to the complexity of the deck, and it highlights just the flexibility and the power of the deck being able to present you and your opponent with so many different decisions. It really 
taxes the math part of your brain. You really have to be doing combat math. You have to be calculating if I can't kill them this turn, how am I going to kill them next turn? If I play this threat this turn, is it going to speed up my clock next turn? All this kind of stuff. What happens if they cast a wrath? From turn three onward, basically, you have to ask yourself, what happens if I get clarioned now? What happens if I get shattered the sky next turn? All this kind of stuff. It really factors in. And so when and how you deploy your annex is a huge part of that. There were many times when you would see Seth, for example, debating whether he wanted to trade his annex in combat or whether he wanted to hold it back, like in the Fires matchup, so that if he got Clarion the next turn, he would still have a board presence. But it's tough because annex very quickly becomes a high-powered attacker and you really want to be getting in there with it. So these are the kind of questions that add a lot of subtlety to the deck and give it a lot more play than some of the mono-red decks in the past. I also thought it was interesting that Seth's list uh, and also Andrea Mangucci's list not running the shocks and the combat tricks performed a lot better this weekend. I think these guys were expecting less aggro in the meta, which is why they chose to make that decision. But I think it's interesting that even in, in spite of there being more aggro than they expected in the tournament, these lists still did very well. Finally, a card notably absent from this tournament all weekend was Phoenix of Ash. I was actually happy to see this card missing myself because I've been kind of down on it. It's been my opinion since the card was spoiled that this wasn't going to be a strong player in this standard format. I kind of stand by that. I haven't been impressed with it on the ladder. A lot of people have kind of sworn by it and said that it's this great recursive threat and that it provides some kind of mid-game resiliency. My main beef with this card has always been that the damage output per the mana that you spent on it is just too low. So it's not that it's not a strong card, it's not that it's not a powerful card that can win you the game. But if you look at the threats that the red deck is deploying, they're all study in the efficiency of how to convert mana into a maximum amount of damage quickly. So if you look at a card like Scorch Spitter, that costs you one red mana and gets in for two damage a turn. When you have Torbran on the field, Scorch Spitter is a one mana six damage a turn, which is just insane. Same with Fervent Champion, Javier Dominguez, that card. It does you one damage per turn, but when you have it in multiples, it's doing two damage per turn. Look at a card like Anax Hardened in the Forge. That card is consistently a four, five, six, even a seven power attacker for three mana. And of course, Torbran just kind of exponentially increases the amount of damage that your deck is doing. Same with Embercleave. So if you're looking at the curve of the red deck, it's really trying to maximize all of these cards, which are super, super efficient at converting mana into damage. And the Phoenix really is not. When you consider that the Scorch Spitter does two damage a turn for one mana, it's really hard to justify the Phoenix doing two damage a turn for three mana. And I find that the situations in which the Phoenix are good tend to be the situations in which you've already lost the game. So in the red deck, 
the only time that you can realistically afford to spend four mana to tap out for a 3-3 haste flyer is probably after you've already lost a lot of your threats or probably after you have run out of better things to do in your hand. And at that point as the red deck, if you haven't won the game, you're probably not going to. I also think that spending your mana to pump this thing up is just not a very feasible game plan. And being able to have it just exiled by a Banishing Light, Elspeth Conquers Death, having Teferi return it to your hand, stuff like this, just starts to make it look like a pretty underwhelming threat overall. And when you compare it to a card like Anax that you can drop on turn three, there's no comparison about the power level of those two cards. So overall, I haven't been impressed with the Phoenix and... Perhaps there'll be a meta game in which it shines and is better, but I think as it stands, not impressed and not surprised to see it lacking in this tournament. Final thing I want to note here is just that I was really impressed with the Akron War out of the sideboard for Eli Loveman. That card did some work in the matchup against Jeskai Fires. I just think that it's really a versatile card and one that you should be looking out for in any kind of aggressive mid-range creature strategy like the Fires deck has. I even wonder about its effectiveness in the Red Mirror. Maybe it's too slow, but just an interesting card to think about. Okay, let's talk about the next deck on the list here, Team of Reclamation. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, this deck did not win the tournament. The highest this deck was able to place was seventh, so it did make it into the top eight, but in a tournament of only 16, that's not necessarily the same metagame percentage achievement. So this deck tends to flare up and then die back down. People get excited about it for any given tournament. It ends up not being able to close the distance, and then people kind of sour on it. And I I can see a little bit why it gained some traction in the meta game with Theros Beyond Death. Oro, of course, being a fantastic pickup. Storm's Wrath being a much better solution to a previous problem than Flame Sweep. And then, of course, getting a little bit of extra filtering and whatnot from the versions running Omen of the Sea. Also... Thassa's Intervention being another good option for the deck. So, you know, it's easy to see why this deck picked up some additional steam and got some additional power. But I I just still think that this deck suffers from the same challenges it ever did, which is that the combo can be fragile, the reclamation game plan is fairly disruptible, like I was saying earlier, Teferi and Nasa just shut this deck down hard. And it's also a deck which, like if you look at a deck like Fires, for example, it's somewhat of a combo deck, but if you don't have your Fires online, you can just still slam big threats and get in there and, and win that way. You see it happen all the time where someone on turn 7 or maybe turn 8, they'll just slam down a Cavalier of Flames and get in there, or a Kenrith or whatever. So that's clearly a deck that doesn't really rely on its big combo to finish the game. Whereas Team of Reclamation, is, it's a lot more fragile 
it's a lot harder to have the game plan close out if you're not able to assemble your big finish. You know, sometimes you can get there just by playing a big crisis or maybe even riding Oro to victory. But it's a much less consistent game plan. The threat density is a lot lower. With a Teferi out, you don't really get to leverage the mana advantage of your wilderness. Whereas in the Fires matchup, Teferi just doesn't impact your mana at all, really. Unless someone bounces your Fires with the Teferi. So overall... I just find this Reclamation deck to be a lot more susceptible to disruption. And it's not surprising to me that the deck wasn't able to go the distance and close it out against some of the other powerful options in the format. Now, one of the things that interested me the most about this deck was just that it seemed to be the deck that varied the most widely in the builds. For example... We had Chris Kavartek running his Nissa flavor of the deck, which none of the other competitors brought. We had some people main decking Niv-Mizzet with other people having it in the sideboard. So I think that this is a deck that could still have a lot of development ahead of it. It could just be that we haven't seen the optimal build of this deck in this format yet. You have so many options in Tima, and they're all quite powerful. And so what we might see is moving forward or maybe in one of the coming sets we'll finally see the ultimate version of this deck and see what it's really capable of. However, I think that that flexibility affords it a lot of options in the sideboard, for example. That was one of the things that I liked about this deck is that you get access to a lot of really strong sideboard options such as Niv-Mizzet, which... Though maybe not as strong in this format as it has been in past formats because, again, this threat-heavy tap-out style of control as opposed to like a more instant sorcery counterspell-based control of the past. But Niv-Mizzet is just still a very strong card that can take over the game and is kind of an insta-win if you resolve an explosion with Niv-Mizzet on the board. Also, you get access to Shifting Ceratops, which some of the competitors ran. You also get very, very efficient removal spells in the form of Scorching Dragonfire and also Fry. These are two very, very clean answers to a lot of the different problems in the format that you would see out of the blue-white deck, for example. And it's really, really nice to be able to have this, as well as Aether Gust, which of course is one of the strongest cards in the format if you are facing the colors that that card hoses. So that's one thing I really like about the deck, and I think it's one thing that makes this deck very tunable. So I think, yeah, you can really see it tuned to a meta game. You can really see it tuned for a tournament. It's one of the stronger aspects of this deck, in my opinion. But still, overall, I just think it's too inconsistent. It's too easy to disrupt, and it really loses hard, in my opinion, to the Azorius matchup. And that's just not a place you want to be. That deck, of course, is going to be all over the place moving forward. Finally, let's just talk briefly about John Food. Of course, most of us were surprised to see this show up in the hands of Piotr Glagowski, Canister. His signature deck, of course. He seemed to think that this deck could take him all the way this weekend again. 
My opinion after seeing it in this field was that it was just a little bit underpowered for this format. I think it's still a very strong deck, but again, just relies a little bit too heavily on that synergistic things coming together as opposed to like I was talking about just being able to resolve haymakers and kind of get in there and get the game finished. Also, this deck suffers a lot in a format where people are really focused on gaining life. So for example, at the last Mythic Championship, there was some amount of life gain going around in the form of the food decks and whatnot, but there were a lot of decks that were kind of ignoring it. You had fires, you had blue-green flash. Whereas in this format, if you look down the list, it's like Azorius Control is gaining life. You've got these Jeskai decks running Dream Trawler that are gaining life. You have Oro gaining life. And the red decks are the decks, you know, that don't really care about that either way and that just try to get the game finished before you can really get your cat oven engine going off with the burn anyway. So I think that the the usual game plan of this deck, which is like plan A, burn them out, and then maybe plan B, get a massive Corvold off and, and kill him in a few swings, was just really not that effective against this particular meta game. The decks coming into this meta game, I think, were kind of incidentally teched to do well in the matchup against this deck. I think the big decks of the tournament, Azorius, Mono Red, Fires, Team of Reclamation, all had a pretty solid game plan against John Food. And I don't think that John Food had any particular silver bullets against any of those decks either. So on both sides of it, I think it was just a little bit ill-equipped to deal with the matter, and I wasn't surprised to see it stop its run when it did. Okay, now let's talk about a few decks which I've been seeing on the ladder which didn't show up at this tournament at all. First of all, Simic. I think a lot of us were maybe expecting to see at least one copy of Simic enter this tournament, but it doesn't surprise me when you really get into it because Simic has really seen a downtick in this meta game, and I think it's just because... Again, like Jund Food, it's just a little bit soft to a lot of the stuff which is incidentally happening in the format anyway. So blue-white tends to kind of control it out. Also, if your big game plan is resolving these huge expensive cards that don't come down until later in the game, like a finale or even like an agent of treachery, then the blue deck has a fairly easy time with that counter magic of dealing with it. And the board wipes can really control your game plan in the meantime. Also, a lot of really solid exile answers to threats like Cavalier of Thorns, for example, or Oro, just make those cards a lot less effective in the meta game. So the Azorius deck can really shut this deck down. The red decks are often just too fast for it. The red deck just thrives in any meta game where the opponent is not killing your creatures or in some way managing your board in the first few turns of the game. Whereas in previous meta games, it was kind of enough for the Simic deck to just get down a Risen Reef and hide behind an Arboreal Grazer and hope that Nyssa and some combination of Nyssa and Cavaliers with a finale finish was going to get you there. But this red deck is just too fast 
by the time you're resolving your Nessa, they're setting up for that Embercleave kill off of Torbrand and stuff like that. And you're just not lining up well. So yeah, Simic, not particularly strong in this field. Also notably absent from this tournament was the Thassa Deep Dwelling and Agent of Treachery combo that we've been seeing a lot on the ladder. Zero copies of either of those cards in any of these decks. So that should be telling. It's not that it's not a powerful combo, but clearly just didn't make the cut at the top levels of play. And I expect to see a downtick in Simic strategies and strategies featuring that combo on the ladder moving forward. Mono Black, that's another ladder favorite, which didn't make it at the top levels of play. And in my opinion, it's just for all the reasons that I've outlined before, I think the game plan is a bit too linear for Mono Black. It's a bit too easy to disrupt. And quite frankly, if your big finish in this format is relying on resolving a threat on turn 5 with a stable board, then you're not going to get there a lot of the time. I mean, look at a lot of the biggest decks in this format are either aiming to have you dead by turn 5, or they're wrathing the board on turn 4. And both of those plans don't line up, or they line up very well, I should say, against resolving your Gary, right? So I just don't think that running this deck, you can expect that your kind of nickel and diming game plan of maybe playing your knight on turn one, Fenlurker on turn two, into Ayara on turn three, into Nightmare Shepherd on turn four, and following it up with Gary on turn five. That's just not going to cut it in a matter when people are trying to shatter the sky on you, where you have two hasty cavaliers attacking you for 15 damage on turn five, when you have someone resolving Torbran the turn before your Gary hits the battlefield. It's just, it's not going to be sustainable. And I also think that the deck just doesn't have enough resilience. And even with disruptive elements like Agonizing Remorse, for example, in a lot of cases, it's just still not going to get you there against the strong threats and the diversity of threats that you see in the format. And another thing that I don't like in general about these mono colored decks is that you just don't get that much from the sideboard and i think the mono black deck in particular it doesn't necessarily give you all of the tools to deal with the diverse matter that you're going to encounter and the red deck gets around that by just having a blistering fast and very strong game plan which often says look you just need to respond to me and it's not that they're not bringing in cards from the sideboard but their proactive plan is so strong that they really lean on that whereas the black deck it's just a bit too slow for that so it it's just very very hard to leverage that deck into all of the different matchups that you'd be facing this weekend and so yeah not at all surprised to not see that deck anywhere in this tournament Another card that was nowhere in this tournament was Heliod Suncrowned. And I think that this just points in general to the fact that this mono-white aggro life gain deck is really more of a meme or like a, a tier 2 deck than anything else. It's not that it can't be strong on the ladder, especially in best of one. 
But again, it just lacks some of the deeper tools to be able to go toe-to-toe against the variety of powerful decks that you see in the format. And again, it's just, it's weak to the wraths, and it's not necessarily as fast and as powerful as the Fires deck. It's not necessarily as explosive as the Mono Red deck. And so really, if you can't check one of those boxes better than any other deck in the format, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this anyway? So there you have it. That is my cursory analysis of the World Championship 2020. I'm going to be excited to jump into this standard format moving forward now that we have some really solid tournament results to look on. I expect to see copies of all of these decks on the ladder, and I expect to see the meta game somewhat solidifying around this stuff. My prediction is that Azorius Control is probably moving towards being a solved deck or being... My guess is that you're not going to see a lot of change and innovation in the Azorius lineup. However, I do think that Reclamation still has a lot to be explored there, so I expect to see more tweaks in that deck. Maybe it'll just fall off as people realize that it's probably not going to actually take down a tournament. But I would be surprised if we've seen the last of that deck. I just still think that there's a lot of life left in it and there's a lot of exploration to be done. Same with the Fires deck. I expect that we're going to still see some amount of experimentation with this deck and different permutations. And unlike the Reclamation deck, I think that the Fires deck is still a strong contender as one of the top decks of the format. And you should definitely be looking out for it in any tournament that you play. I think it would take something big to unseat that deck as being one of the best decks in the format. I think Mono Red, of course, is here to stay. This is a powerful player. I think that you just have to account for it now. And again, it wouldn't surprise me to see this deck take down a big tournament coming up here. I think this deck is a real contender. So there you have it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this rundown. I always appreciate your support. You can find the Arena Craft podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, on twitch.tv, Arena Craft Pod. You can send us an email at arenacraftpod at gmail.com. And of course, feel free to come by and say hi to us in our Discord community. It is open to anyone. We have more and more conversation going on there as the weeks go by. And we'd love to see you stop through, share your deck ideas, give us some feedback, tell us what you'd like to hear on the show. Would be most welcome. And so I will look forward to exploring this new standard matter with you moving forward in the coming weeks. And until then, take care.